Welcome, beautiful people to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news in the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. On today's show, we're going to talk about why Battlefield 2042 failed, Cyberpunk 2077 finally releasing, and Nintendo shutting down the 3DS and Wii U shops. But first, let's talk about gaming in Hollywood, as there was a few announcements made last week. So Sega CEO Haruki Satomi confirmed that Sonic the Hedgehog will be getting a third theatrical film alongside a series starring Knuckles voiced once again by Idris Elba. Um, It's kind of interesting to go back in time and actually did after this announcement was made to go see that original Sonic the Hedgehog trailer and, and obviously the horrendously awful way <laughs> that Sonic was animated um, to what preceded it, which, which obviously looking back, we can now successfully say it was one of the greatest decisions a film producer has ever made to kind of shut everything down. What they what did they do? They delayed the film by about like five months or something like that. Brought in some new artists, brought in some new outsiders in order to completely redesign Sonic. And it's interesting because it's you kind of have to look at that and go, man, would this film have been as successful if everything was the same except we had the baby dolphin teeth, hideous version of Sonic that was first shown it probably wouldn't have been so it's interesting to go back to that moment and be where we are now where the first film was actually pretty good so it's a really enjoyable film is it like you know movie of the year something I've seen multiple times no I've seen it like one and a half times I think <laughs> something like that um but it was just, it was really good it's it it was just a really enjoyable film and uh i am definitely looking forward to the second one and it's cool to see that they're already you know so confident in it that they're gonna go ahead and they're going ahead with a third film and uh, a series just about knuckles that i believe will just be going straight to paramount plus um so i mean all of it is pretty great it's it's kind of what i've been saying for a while about Sonic is that Sonic has awful games. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry, but Sonic the Hedgehog games are just not really as good as they're cracked up to be. And um, the character is way more valuable than the video games, which has become uh, certainly interesting. The that, that next Sonic game does look kind of interesting. That was the Sonic Frontiers. Uh, but it, it's been kind of low for a while, so it's, it's just pretty cool to see that success. We also learned that Amazon has entered into a first-look deal with Sonic the Hedgehog film producer DJ2 Entertainment, which owns the right to adapt video games such as Disco Elysium, It Takes Two, and Life is Strange into either films or TV series. The deal would give Amazon first right of refusal. Which basically means that, uh, you know, this company owns the right to create these films and TV shows. Like they pay for, you know, uh, that opportunity doesn't mean 
that they will definitely do something with it. It's more like taking it off the table for any other production company to be able to do something with it. And um, what that basically means is that if this company decides to go ahead with one of those productions, it has to be shown and pitched to Amazon first. And then at that point, Amazon can say, uh, yeah, we'll definitely take it or no. And then at that point, they can go to whatever, HBO, Paramount, all these other different uh, networks. Uh, Life is Strange and It Takes Two are definitely two really interesting choices in terms of turning into films and TV series. Don't see how those would work too well. But Disco Elysium would definitely be a very, very interesting uh, thing to see. And I think um, it would actually work perfectly for Amazon Prime uh, Video. But there's so many games, and now we're at this point where it reminds me of an episode I made of Camp Koji. It, I mean, this was like definitely over a year ago. Oh, here we go. I have the exact... Uh, it was recorded... July 2020, so a while ago, called Hollywood Meet Gaming, where I, uh, I'm not going to say I predicted, but I started talking a lot about um, this is going to be something that is going to become normal in terms of more and more um, film and TV studios, especially in the streaming side, are going to start looking into uh, video games in terms of creating adaptations, like books are old news. Now I want to start adapting video games because they see just how large the industry is, how, how it's growing, and then obviously the explosion that the video game industry had in 2020. But it's like you also have to be so careful about which of these properties to go after because once you break down a lot of video game stories and how much we enjoyed them in our our, our medium, so much of it is made up of you know the interactivity part. If you if you remove uh, interactivity out of those uh, stories, and obviously the 20, 30 hours that you spend uh, in this world, a lot of these stories sort of collapse. So a lot of these adaptations are really about taking kind of those really core beats, those core tenets that. Uh, make that IP what it was, uh, sort of just like the the very basic foundation of the stories, and then trying to adapt it into a completely different medium. And that's really why you know video game adaptations have been so difficult and are, are usually lambasted and are just like, wow, this sucks, is it's either a company takes... Uh, they pander way too much uh, to the gamers and they try to just sort of recreate the video game, but obviously take away the interactivity, which obviously doesn't make any sense. Or they just kind of take the title and they just turn it into their their own thing and that you lose that core audience, which is going to make up the bulk of people that are going to go and watch your uh, your film, which is why I think the Sonic the Hedgehog film did so well, why I think Detective Pikachu did so well is um, because they took the formula, they created their own stories out of it without completely alienating um, uh, sort of the spirit of the original and alienating the fans of the original version. 
Another thing we found out is that Walton Goggins is set as one of the leads on Amazon Prime Video's upcoming Fallout TV series. Details about Goggins' character were not revealed, but he is believed to be playing a ghoul. I mean, just fantastic casting all around. Uh, Walton Goggins is just amazing, amazing. You know, one of my personal favorite uh, films is The Hateful Eight, and he, he was just a delight. I mean, the guy was just killed it, man. Uh, for those that have never played Fallout, a ghoul is basically a human character, but one that survived uh, through intense periods of radiation. So it's kind of right there in the name. They sort of have like a ghoulish appearance, you know, like a little bit uh, of a zombie, like their their skin is almost like burned and radiated. Um but they are still human, but they're con- they're sort of called and considered ghouls. So, um, not hundred percent sure if that's exactly who's playing. That uh, it, it does it doesn't even matter. The fact that they got Goggins in here is just I'm s- even more so looking forward to it. And then probably one of the biggest pieces, Netflix announced that they are working with 2K and Take-Two to produce a film adaptation of the renowned video game franchise Bioshock with plans to develop a potential cinematic universe. Um, Funny enough, the last time they tried to make a Bioshock movie was actually all the way back in 2008, and Gore Verbinski was attached. So uh, this isn't the first crack at it. Uh, No writer or director has been attached all of Twitter is is really hoping for Guillermo del Toro. I mean, uh, talk about a perfect director for this type of project. It's, it's, his name has been attached to a potential Bioshock film for quite some time. This is kind of those like hope for the best, prepare for the worst sort of situations because I, I just can't see a Bioshock film working. Um, I thought, I think it would be so fascinating to be able to enter that world of Bioshock before uh, Bioshock. I think that would really make the most interesting part. uh, Excuse me. That would make the most interesting uh, narrative on a TV screen. And obviously you would have to use a TV series in order to make that possible. A film, uh, you know, just playing through that game. I, I, I just can't imagine a film being done well. It's almost like when people were talking about Watchmen, if you ever read the novel and there were talks about creating a film and you said, there's just no way you can turn this into a film. And then Zack Snyder tried and it was like four hours long, kind of proving the point of how difficult it is. I think Bioshock sort of falls a little bit similar to that where, um, you know, even if they went with the story beats, which is like, look, if you've played Bioshock, you kind of already know the twist, right? Um, but even so, fitting all of that um, into, you know, two hours, it, I, I, it's just going to be so tough. And I, I just can't imagine Netflix not meddling. Uh, we've, we've seen Netflix adaptations in the past and they, uh, they aren't really super true to form. So that's definitely a hope for the best prepare for the worst. Now, next story deals with Battlefield 2042. During an internal town hall meeting, EA executives admitted that Battlefield 2042 was a miss. Surprise, surprise. EA's chief studios officer, Laura Meal, said, quote, it's really important to acknowledge when we have misses. This is certainly the case with the Battlefield launch, which failed to meet the expectations of our players and also clearly missed 
our own expectations. She blamed a few things, uh, one of them being the aging frostbite engine, uh, the pandemic, and you know, before I even move on to a pandemic, the frostbite engine. I mean, we we've sort of been here before. It was also one of the uh, core things that was blamed on on Anthem's failure too. So the fact that EA uh, keeps using this engine is, is it's sort of weird, or yeah, at the very least, taking some time off to to, to stabilize it. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Um, the pandemic. Uh, was another thing that they uh, blamed, which is obviously very justified, uh, alongside a historic number of bugs. Well, you only kind of have yourself to blame for that one. So I wouldn't really call that a blame because it's essentially a problem that you create yourself. Like <laughs> every game has bugs. Every single game has a gigantic amount of bugs at some point. Um it's a natural prop. It's 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 part of the development process, but it it only becomes a problem if you then ship the game with a bunch of bugs in it. So, I I I don't really look at that as a point of blame because you kind of only you know the the, the directors and the higher ups at Electronics Arts only have themselves to blame because it's impossible to think of a scenario where the developers and the QA team or and, and the coders are all saying thumbs up this game is ready to go we we've we, we know now that's not how any of this works she also blamed halo infinite's surprise multiplayer release claiming it quote was not favorable because halo infinite was a very polished titles whereas battlefield 2042 contained bugs and wasn't as polished so it's been interesting because after this report was, uh, this, this story was put out there, EA had tried to walk back the Halo Infinite comments, uh, sort of putting out statements, um, talking about how, no, that's not what we said when eh, it, it's according to a lot of corroborations. On the official account, it was exactly what was said. It's sort of weird how um, they're having a problem with that part of it being um, put out there. Obviously, a lot of people are creating, like putting a lot of focus on there. Unfortunately, that's just the type of information age we're living now where you can create an entire story, talk about a bunch of different things, and we can walk away from this with the overall theme being EA is aware it's a miss. Um, they're putting the blame on a few different things, but obviously the more salacious part of that conversation is, oh my God, they, they're blaming Halo Infinite. And then that's really, you know, it's, I mean, it's just the nature of information nowadays, right? Especially when we talk about information being spread so much on social media like Reddit and Twitter, where you have users that will create Reddit posts and then that will be at the top of the post. Oh my God, EA is blaming Halo for their failure. And then, you know, people don't even read the article and then they just kind of just keep commenting on it. And then that's how something like that goes on uh, to spread. It's one of the most annoying things about the internet, in my opinion. But it is definitely a you know, not even a nugget of truth. It is the truth. Halo Infinite 
is, you know, when you're looking back at electronic arts and you're making an assessment of what went wrong with Cyberpunk 20, excuse me, Cyberpunk, uh, I was looking at my notes, that's the next story, uh, with Battlefield 2042, that's definitely one of those things that you can look at and say, hey, this isn't the reason why we failed, but damn, it made things a whole lot worse when it came to the fact that Halo Infinite was released in such a polished state compared to our multiplayer. And uh, to boot, it came out at a time when Battlefield was doing their play test, which was already pretty rough. And here comes Halo Infinite saying, hey, you guys can play the multiplayer a few weeks before the single player comes out. But even 343 Industries was calling it a beta. They never really said like, hey, here's Halo Infinite's multiplayer. They really did announce it as a beta with uh, statistics and, and, and things that you earn can be then moved over to the main game when it launched in December. And it, 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 it is embarrassing to see. It absolutely was an embarrassing moment in time for EA and Battlefield 2042 for you guys to release this game is such a shitty state, knowing definitely internally that you should have delayed this game. There's, there's just no doubt in anyone's mind that this game should have been delayed. And here comes another first-person shooter that is free-to-play, completely free-to-play, uh, coming out in a much more polished state than a game that you are trying to convince people is worth $69.99. And it's interesting because when uh, Halo's multiplayer was announced, I had sent a tweet out talking about, you know, $70. In, in my opinion, the day of $70 multiplayer games are kind of over. And one of the reasons why they're over is if you do not launch in an extremely polished state and launch with a, an aggressive roadmap, uh, being extremely aggressive with customer feedback and customer service and answering questions along the way from the very, very beginning, you're going to fail. And one of the reasons why you're going to fail is that there are too many polished, high-quality, free-to-play shooters on the market, even some that don't have a AAA budget, something like an Escape from Tarkov or uh, even a, a PUBG even, for example, right? Um, you know, a lot of shooter fans are being satisfied and happy with uh, multiplayer games that aren't these super AAA games, but the the core of those games is very good, and they'll continue playing them. And it's one of the reasons why it's so imperative to capture an audience quickly, because we now live in this era where things are, you know, free. That's that's one of the negatives of lowering the barrier of entry to gaming. It's the same thing that uh, streaming services for television, movies, and music also suffer from. Is that when you're on Netflix and you have uh, so many choices for just one price, one low price, the moment you start watching something, you might you might not give it that fair shake, right? Because you can easily just shut it down and just watch something else it's sort of the same when it comes to gaming and even services like game pass but obviously we're talking more about multiplayer here 
where it's easier to hop around. When Call of Duty is having a cheating problem, you can go over to Apex Legends. When Apex Legends is kind of getting a little bit stale, Valorant now has a new agent. Now you can go over to Valorant. Oh, Call of Duty's anti, you know, that Ricochet software kind of seems to be working or they dropped uh, a new map. Let me go check that out. Let me go um, back to Call of Duty Warzone. So that's really what EA put themselves up to. And it's interesting because one of the first things that I said about EA is that they need to go the knockout city route with Battlefield. They need to be confident in their product and give people a seven-day trial to play Battlefield. And then you can pay for it and, and, and keep your progress. Or you can play Battlefield 2042 for free until you reach level 20 or something like that. But it just seems like they really weren't confident themselves. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that's where we are with gaming right now. It's one of the reasons why I think that the entire review system for video games has to be revamped just from a pure, what do you call it? A pure taking, sort of taking responsibility sort of angle from a lot of these media publications Reviews just don't work like they used to because, you know, there's so many different versions that are put out there. There's so many different updates that can break the game at launch. Obviously, when you're reviewing something pre-release, it's nothing compared to when a game is actually released and it's it's actually out there in the world and servers are being tested uh, in, in, you know, real-world applications. It's one of the reasons why I look back and I'm baffled by people that gave Cyberpunk a nine when my experience was a five because, you know, I had so many bugs and glitches and issues and the same can be said with so many people around the world. Um, but it, it, it also goes to show why people need to stop pre-ordering games. It's almost like, you know, people just need to stop purchasing games day one period at this point. There's This, this has happened so many times. It's like how many times do you have to learn this lesson before you uh, learn that it's probably just no longer a good idea to buy games at launch anymore. I feel like we've kind of reached this point in time now where way too many companies are understanding that I'm going to lose more money delaying the game than I'm going to make by releasing it and then fixing it along the way. Which leads us right into our next, next, next story, which is Cyberpunk 2077. So last week, CD Projekt Red released patch 1.5 for cyberpunk 2077 which finally saw next gen upgrades for the xbox series s x and playstation 5 versions along with a list of additions and changes changes included a reworked perk system improved driving controls improved crowd and combat ai which is exclusive to next gen consoles ps4 and xbox one did not get these AI improvements. Apparently, they were impossible to implement. New weapons, cosmetics, apartments, and the ability to change your appearance in-game along many other changes. So it would seem 14 months, 14 long months after release, this seems to be the version of Cyberpunk 2077 that was meant to launch. Although, apparently, the update completely destroys the PlayStation 4 version, Apparently, there have been a lot of complaints from PlayStation 4 players at the moment that they upgraded. 
apparently when they try to launch it, the game is completely corrupted and they're unable to play it. I saw some stories that this primarily affects physical owners and not digital owners, which I'm sure a lot of those PlayStation 4 players are physical owners since the game has been 10 bucks for a while. Um, but uh, I could see the price sort of shooting up a little bit. I think, it's, I think it was $12.99 uh, last week or a few days ago or something like that. Um, so many things, uh, so many emotions I'm feeling with this Cyberpunk 2077 <clears throat> uh, patch release. All right, so a, a few things. Number one, they did sort of exactly what I said they had to do. Like literally, they, they did exactly what I said they were going to do. Uh, which I will commend them uh, for, which I said that Cyberpunk can't uh, rework the game by patches, like patches are, are there for balancing and bug squashing, but that they, they have to basically almost re-release the game when they do the next-gen version. I uh, brought that up a while ago on, on Camp Koji, and that's exactly what they did. They did exactly what they needed to do. They had, they had a stream going. They sort of said, hey, tomorrow join us for this special event. Uh, and then they sort of hot dropped the update, which I believe was the right way to go. But it's also weird. We have to all agree this is weird to watch a company create an event and almost like market this and talk about this like as downloadable content when all this update does is merely stabilize the game to the point that it should have sort of been, right? Like, you know, they, they, they're making like this big deal about customizing my character mid-game and, uh, you know, making the map actually usable instead of this just disgusting vomit fest of icons that the map used to be at launch, and sort of treat it like this, hey guys, isn't this really cool? Look all this stuff we're giving you. And it's like, no, you're 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 giving me what what I was supposed to get, right? It's it's like um, you know, you're you order you go to a restaurant, order mac and cheese, and they just you know give you uh you know uncooked or half cooked noodles and say, Here's your mac and cheese, and you're like, Well, eh, this isn't really mac and cheese, this is not what I ordered. And then an hour later, they come here, they go here, this is del very delicious mac and cheese. Isn't this amazing? Like, uh, you know, don't worry about it. You know, we went out of our way to make it for you. Uh, it was a lot of trouble, but uh, we hope you enjoy. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is what <laughs> this is what I've been waiting an hour for. So it's just really weird for them to create this, you know, moment about it and it's interesting because there weren't really many media stories talking about sort of the fundamental fact that essentially what CD Projekt Red did is that 14 months after the release, they released a game that should have been like this, <laughs> like, yeah, combat and pedestrian AI should have been there from the very beginning. We shouldn't have waited 14 months for that. I shouldn't have to have waited 14 months to change my character's hairstyle in the middle of my game. Like it's, it's a weird thing or it's like, guess what guys, you can finally drive motorcycles the way they're supposed to actually drive. It's like, what the hell are you guys talking about? And yeah, they added a couple other things like extra apartments and extra jackets and a few new weapons and scopes. And it's like, 
that's the type of stuff that you should sort of try to create a celebration about. It's like, hey, guys, here's a few apartments and these little small pieces of content that we're giving to you free of charge. It's like, okay, that's pretty cool. But a lot of this is just like stability. You're literally just 14 months later giving people the game that they paid $60, $70 for. So wait, the game was never 70, right? I think it was always 60. Uh, The game that people paid $59.99 for. So I haven't played this game since January around January 2021. The game released in December 2020, if I'm not mistaken. And um, ever since then, I I finished the game. I sort of... Um, oh, sorry. It came out in November 2020. Why was I thinking December? Um, I sort of played in... I think I finished around... No, hold on. I'm bugging. That was wrong. The game came out. I knew I wasn't wrong. I had to go online and look at it. December 10th, 2020 was when uh, the game first released. So I think around January was when I put the game down because it was very apparent that the updates weren't going to be very frequent. I played through the game story. I really didn't I didn't like it very much not only just you know obviously a lot of it was the amount of bugs and issues that i had playing the xbox series x version um but as much as i loved some of the missions and ugh, just some of the best writing you'll ever find in any video game i mean the, the writing is so good the voice acting is amazing the voice direction is just top notch some of the best you'll ever find in the industry uh, wasn't really a fan of the ending myself, but I also wasn't a fan of, you know, this. it wasn't the game that was sold to me. That's kind of why I used to always talk about Cyberpunk. And with this update, they, you know, they did a lot of balancing changes. So, you know, the perks and the way that you create your builds really means a lot more than it used to. And I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I was replaying the game and it's definitely a lot more stable it looks a little bit nicer. I think it runs a lot more stable. A lot of the hiccups, the small things I noticed when I was playing it, I haven't really seen any much of those things. But it, there's also still a little bit of this lifelessness uh, with the city, or you know, even some of the weird things like when you're a passenger and you know the um, the car moves like it's on a block of ice. Just a lot of these small things that kind of break that immersion and um you know as i was playing i was like man i appreciate that the game is much more stable but it's difficult for me to go through the story because it's like i kind of already know the beats i know what's going to happen and i sort of say to myself do i want to play this story again uh, especially the ending you know the ending is just the penultimate version of illusion of choice that i felt when I was playing this game, that I really didn't feel like I had a lot of choice compared to games like Fallout or uh, or Elder Scrolls, for example. So, you know, to me, I played the game, and the only thing I could think about when playing the game is how much I wished this game was delayed until February 2022. <laughs> uh, or at the very least, you know... December 2021 instead of December 2020. Uh, I, I, it, it just made me wish that this company was a lot more transparent uh, and 
as annoying as it was going through those moments in Cyberpunk where the game was getting delayed, delayed, we all had the memes with the yellow uh, background posts and stuff like that. Um, I, j- I just really wish for more transparency. I would have respected CD Projekt Red so much more if they would have gotten on a video and their CEO would have just said, man, we really wanted to s- sell this, but we can't. Or at the very least, releasing the next-gen versions and then uh, delaying the PS4 and Xbox One versions or just scrapping them all together, I think would have been uh, would have done so much more for this game. Uh, you know, as of right now, the question is what will CD Projekt Red do now versus what uh, I think they should do. And I think what they will do and what I think they should do are going to be completely opposite because I, I still think CD Projekt Red needs to go on more of an apology tour, in my opinion. You know, we're talking about a company that knowingly released a shitty game. The same way that Rockstar did with the GTA uh, trilogy, quote and quote, definitive edition, sure, buddy. Same thing with EA and Battlefield 2042, where somehow I'm not the type of gamer that it's like, okay, cool, patch 1.5, you're giving me a new apartment. I'm all of a sudden just supposed to forget about what happened in December 2020. Right, it 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 drastically outranks Battlefield and, and GTA in terms of deceptiveness from a company. I mean, we have to go back and remember that company wasn't even giving out review codes. You could only review PC. You couldn't use your own footage. They wouldn't give out console codes. They weren't showing off the PS4 and Xbox One versions. They lied about being unaware of how horrible those versions were and how unstable they were. They still went ahead and sold those games. I, I, I still think that there's more to this apology tour than here's a couple of few cool new jackets, for example. You know, I would love to see this company take the No Man's Sky approach. And a lot of people have informed me that this is a little bit similar to what happened with Witcher 3. Apparently, Witcher 3 was a little bit unstable at launch, and they got better over the years. But apparently, it's definitely not as bad as what happened with Cyberpunk 2077. But I still think that they they have a lot more to go in terms of, uh, you know, releasing more content that should be free and unpaid. In my opinion, this game needs to go through at least a minimum, another 12 to 16 months of content that should never be paid for by the player. But I don't think they're going to do that. We've seen the game selling for like 10, 12, 15 bucks, 20 bucks regularly, $30, $40. I can't remember the last time this game was at full retail, right? And, um, It's, I just don't see them doing it, unfortunately. I, I don't think CD Projekt Red is going to be able to stop themselves from charging for downloadable content right now. And I'm not talking about like big story stuff, right? I'm not talking about a, like a blood and wine type of expansion. I get that has to be paid for, even though I think that should be pushed back. But I want, I think they need to add stuff like, um, 
you know, maybe it's clothing customization at some point. Like, hey, you like that jacket? You can go to a certain place and get the, the colors and patches and look changed. Or, um, you know, adding things like vehicle customization has been one that a lot of people have been asking for that we thought was supposed to be there at launch. You know, something like that, rolling out um, sort of an, an, an auto focused downloadable content where um, you can add different things to your vehicle and, and change the colors and spoilers and all this crazy stuff that you can do to it. Um, and look, there are smarter people that may that could probably come up with way better ideas, but I think that there is still a lot to be done in Cyberpunk 2077. I, th I still think that there's a lot more that they can do to this game, but I I still think that they have a lot more to go or there should be more in that tank of, damn, we really fucked up. And it just doesn't really feel that way from this company. It feels like with this release, it's almost like it's forget and, and not forgive. Just like, hey, for, forget about the fact that we sold you a broken game and made you wait 14 months for you to play a stable version of our story. Um it, it's not even like that I'm sorry we fucked up type of stuff. It's more like, here it is, patch 1.5. There wasn't really a moment. I, I watched the whole um, stream. So maybe it could have been in there, but I definitely didn't hear anything about a, true, a tried and true, hey, we want to start this off by saying we fucked up. Maybe, maybe there's a legal reason for it. I don't know. Our final story is with Nintendo. We're going to talk about Nintendo once again. In a post titled Wii U and Nintendo 3DS eShop discontinuation, Nintendo announced that both online storefronts would cease operations in March 2023. As of May 23, 2022, so this year, it will no longer be possible to use a credit card to add funds to an account in Nintendo eShop on Wii U or the Nintendo 3DS family of systems. As of August 29th, 2022, it will no longer be possible to use a Nintendo eShop card to add funds to an account in Nintendo eShop on Wii U or the Nintendo 3DS family of systems. However, it will still be possible to redeem download codes until late March 2023. Even after late March 2023 and for the foreseeable future, it will still be possible to re-download games and DLC, receive software updates, and enjoy online play on Wii U and Nintendo 3DS family systems. Nintendo released an FAQ regarding the closure where they answered their own softball questions, which I think is one of the stupidest <laughs> ways to have an FAQ. It's such a funny read. You have to go check that out. But there was one particular portion that a lot of people are talking about that was actually removed uh, almost immediately after it was posted. Um, Some... I'm guessing that this was a mistake. This sort of feels like, ooh, this is obviously a theory, um, but th this seems more than just a mistake. It, ju it just does. Nintendo doesn't make mistakes. I'm going to tell you this right now. This sort of feels like something that, you know, these conversations begin in Japan and then they're translated for the other regions. And this sort of seems like something that was part of the original plan, but it was never supposed to be in the final FAQ. And it sort of feels like it was a, oh, 
shit, that was a mistake. But part of me, conspiracy theory time, sort of feels like there was an employee that did this on purpose, like made this mistake on purpose. Uh, it was, it's just weird how it was put out there. And I, I, I don't feel like it was, it was removed too quickly. Like it was removed so quick that it couldn't have been just a reaction to the announcement. It seemed like, oh shit, that, that's actually not supposed to be there sort of thing. But obviously that's just a theory. They wrote, this is the question. Once it is no longer possible to purchase software in Nintendo eShop on Wii U and the Nintendo 3DS family systems, many classic games for past platforms will cease to be available for purchase anywhere. Will you make classic games available to own some other way? If not, then why? Doesn't Nintendo have an obligation to preserve its classic games by continually making them available for purchase? Here is the answer. Across our Nintendo Switch online membership plans, over 130 classic games are currently available in growing libraries for various legacy systems. The games are often enhanced with new features such as online play. We think this is an effective way to make classic content easily available to a broad range of players. Within these libraries, new and longtime players can only find games they remember or have heard about, but other fun games they might not have thought to seek out otherwise. We currently have no plans to offer classic content in other ways. So that part of the FAQ is no longer there. If you try to find it, it's not going to be there. Now, let's go over a couple things. Number one, 130 games out of over 2,000 <laughs> made for those consoles on the subscription service. When we're talking about NES, SNES, N64, and Sega Genesis. Um, and mind you, 130 games on a subscription service, which means that Nintendo can remove those games at will at any point in time, uh, is definitely not an effective way to do anything. And I think this is one aspect of Nintendo Switch Online that a lot of people are not really thinking much about. And that is the fact that at any point in time, Nintendo can remove any of the games that are put onto that surface for whatever reason that they want. They don't have to explain that to you. It's in their terms of service. It's sort of it's an obvious regular occurrence that we think about in subscription services such as Netflix, Game Pass, PlayStation Now. But I see a lot of people not thinking about this possibility because it's such a small library and it's a lot of legacy, older titles. So it's sort of weird to think of a reason as to why they would ever take anything like that down, but it is a possibility. So this definitely in no way, shape or form. Can we believe Nintendo when they say, quote, we think this is an effective way to make classic content easily available to a broad range of players. It, it, it really is not like, let's be honest. It's really not right. It's also estimated that 1,000 digital-only titles will disappear upon closure. Um, it's been weird for me to look at Twitter and places like Reddit where people are actively trying to find games that are about to disappear and are going out of their way to purchase these games now or going out of their way to add funds into these shops. Uh, to me, 
it it baffles me a bit in terms of that thought process because I will say legacy and retro content does not move me. It just doesn't. You know, like I don't mind replaying Super Mario Brothers or seeing an older game like Donkey Kong Country and uh, being filled with nostalgia of me playing it as a child. But I'll be honest, if I'll probably have to think about this a little bit more, but it 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 wouldn't really break me if I couldn't play those games ever again. And it's it's just sort of who I am at my nature as a, just as a person. Like I don't um I don't attach a lot of um feelings into reliving memories. I always think of it as once I live through a memory, it's in my mind and I can always recall the feeling of that memory without having to reinteract with that game or that film or that TV show again. But I also simultaneously understand the, um, I understand why this could be deemed as devastating for a lot of players out there. And why it's so important, and, and I think the most important aspect about this conversation is video game preservation, which is just not it's just something that we don't talk about enough in gaming. We just honestly don't. Um, you know, I find it weird to see people scrambling to buy this stuff since there's just really a zero percent chance that Nintendo keeps these servers running twenty four seven. You know, at some point, you do have to realize that the Wii, the 3DS, and the Wii U, uh, if I had to make an educated guess, all those servers are probably going to be shut down at the same time. For the Nintendo Wii, you can still download stuff, but people also need to realize that the Wii U base is way smaller than Wii was. <laughs> and uh, same thing with the 3DS. It's not as big as I think people think it is. I would probably surmise that there are probably more active Wii players than there are 3DS and Wii U. I could be wrong. I don't have the the data in front of me, but I could see this naturally hitting a point in time where in 2030 or something like that, Nintendo decides that the Wii is starting to really start to scale down and they make the decision to just shut down all these servers at the same time, at which at that point, even if your hardware is working, you won't be able to re-download any of these titles uh, and they have absolutely no legal obligation to keep those servers running. So it's weird to me to see so many people make that sort of their first point that they run to of like, oh my God, scrambling, I have to go buy these things. Where to me, if if I'm like this core of a Nintendo fan, I'm afraid of losing access to my older titles. I'm 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 going right on my PC and I'm I'm gonna learn how to emulate and and, and pirate. I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I mean, it's just, this is kind of one of those moments in time where it's like, yeah, we talk about how bad piracy is, and we've talked about that so much throughout history. But I feel like that talking point is delivered more by companies protecting profits than it is the natural order or the natural view of trying to understand the way things work. Like I, I, I think it's I think we should all be able to agree that 
switch piracy should be frowned upon. Right? So we talked about this whole big thing that happened uh, a few months ago with Metroid Dread releasing and, and, and being available on emulation day one and websites like Kotaku running stories about that emulation. And it is one of those things where it's like, yeah, I do kind of frown upon that being praised in terms of like, yeah, go, go. If you're really a Nintendo fan, go buy your, your switch, go buy Metroid. And then, uh, maybe, you know, feel more comfortable emulating it. The same way that I said that Pokemon Legends Arceus, those mods are going to go crazy. I've already seen some of them. They're pretty amazing. They've already done so much work visually improving that, that, that game that the PC version of Arceus is, is, is going to probably look mind blowing by the end of the year. Right. So I understand that type of piracy being frowned upon, but I, I I just don't feel the same way when it comes to piracy in terms of accessing entertainment that is so inherently difficult to access, right? If, if, if someone tells me about a film and they go, man, Joel, you would love this film. Unfortunately, it's only available on VHS. Um, but yeah, I'm going to send you a YouTube link that has the full movie. I'm I'm going to watch the YouTube link, right? <laughs> because it's extremely difficult to go out and purchase a VCR and then find a VHS and then hope everything works. And then hooking up to a modern television is another uh, big thing, right? Um, the truth of the matter is that Nintendo doesn't want you playing old games. It's just that simple. I've, I've taught people this lesson time and time again. Uh, I've said it before on the show. People who follow me on Twitter. It's not something that I hide. I used to be a Nintendo employee, but I don't need to still be a Nintendo employee to tell you that actually you, you, you don't ever have to have been a Nintendo employee to understand that Nintendo does not want you to play old games. The writing is right there on the wall, right? We've always had this conversation about, man, this is like easy money for Nintendo to create the Netflix of old games and, and put all their systems and all their games on it. I mean, of course, licensing is probably the most difficult part of that journey, right? But you've seen other companies do it. We saw Xbox do what they've done with backwards compatibility and then we've seen Xbox be extremely transparent uh, last year and say, guys, this is it. This is all we can do because of technological limitations, because of licensing limitations. This is all we can give you. But we tried our best to try to make as many titles backwards compatible as we possibly could. Right. Nintendo absolutely has the resources to do the same. Don't let them trick you in any way, shape, or form. And I'm not trying to sit here and say that licensing and copyright is super easy. It's just a few emails, you know, put the ROM into to, to a folder and then send it online, right? It's, it's really not that easy, but it's also not as difficult as they want you to believe it is. It's also not as damaging to uh, their bottom line as Nintendo wants you to believe it is. Right, we spoke about last week about Bowser, this this this, this guy that's about to spend three years in jail 
and owes Nintendo $14.5 million because Nintendo estimated $65 million of damage. It, it, like, let's be honest, right? We Nintendo just had a direct two weeks ago where they, you know, showed up either, either through third parties or to themselves, showed a bunch of old games that were having sequels or remakes or, you know, Earthbound being added. And the fact that, you know, Live Alive is like the perfect example, which is here's a game that people are only excited for because they were able to play it. And the overwhelming majority of people that played it were only able to because of emulation and piracy. It's, I mean, it's just a fact, right? Nintendo is the type of company that they will always acknowledge their history. They understand immensely. I mean, this, this company just understands, and I hate to use the term weaponize, but I think that's the best word for this uh, scenario, but they know how to properly weaponize uh, nostalgia. They know when and where and how to use it. They fully understand that they, when they announced Super Mario 3D All-Stars, that they could create this game and they can sell it forever. They have no reason to take it off of store shelves. So you have to understand why I find it weird how people said Nintendo, oh, Nintendo's only selling this physical edition and the digital edition for six, seven months because they want to drive sales. And it's like, are you, how are you, are you not paying attention to the company that you're talking about right now? You're telling me that this company couldn't have made more money keeping this game on the system than the alternative of creating apparently FOMO advertising? Like, yeah, that game sold 9 million copies. Are we going to sit here and believe it would not have sold 9 million copies if they didn't uh, limit the sale of that game? Like, come on, let's be realistic. Of course it would have. But Nintendo doesn't want that game on this shelf forever. They want Super Mario Odyssey as the 3D game that you're playing forever. And, you know, the, the Super Mario 3D world with Bowser's Fury, right? There's nothing that Nintendo loves more than the utmost control of their content. It's just what they're known for as a company. Nintendo, not only just because they're a Japanese company, but because of the way that the company is run... Nintendo feels like they know how to how to explain this. They feel like they understand how to deliver content to you more than you do, right? Nintendo believes internally that giving you a service that has a thousands of games on it that you're able to access easily through one price is not good for you. It's the same way as when it's like Nintendo explaining Splatoon 2. When they said, there's a reason why you can't play Salmon Run whenever you want. As weird as we all find that, especially in North America, according to Nintendo, it's not an ideal experience. The ideal experience is not being able to play this particular mode of Splatoon 2 whenever you want. We limit the time and the amount that you're able to access this mode 
because we feel like if we let you access it whenever you want, it's all you'll play. You'll not experience the full breadth of the game. Do you get it now? <laughs> this is why they don't want you accessing, accessing too much retro because there's a fear that when you have access to too much, too, ma too many 64 games, Super Nintendo, GameCube, DS, 3DS games, Game Boy, all these different systems that you're not interacting with the new stuff, with the Nintendo Switch things. Like I said, you, you don't have to have worked at Nintendo to come to this conclusion. You just have to look at the way that they've always run their business. And honestly, it works for them, but we can simultaneously judge them for it. That's okay. The Video Game History Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to preserving, celebrating, and teaching the history of video games, released the following response on Twitter. While it is unfortunate that people won't be able to purchase digital 3DS or Wii U games anymore, we understand the business reality that went into this decision. What we don't understand is what path Nintendo expects its fans to take should they wish to play these games in the future. As a paying member of the Entertainment Software Association, Nintendo actively funds lobbying that prevents even libraries from being able to provide legal access to these games. Now, providing commercial access is understandable, but preventing institutional work to preserve these titles on top of that is actively destructive to video game history. We encourage ESA members like Nintendo to rethink their position on this issue and work with existing institutions to find a solution. This is an even bigger problem than not allowing commercial access to the video games. There are a lot of films that the film industry says that they look back and they regret not being able to preserve. A lot of those films made during the solid film era are now lost forever. Not that there's like an unworkable copy. Like there's just nothing to go off of. There's nothing to restore. So... This is definitely an issue in video games, and this is really one of the reasons why tactics like this should bother you as a gamer, even if you're like me, which is like, ah, you know, like, so what? You wanted those games, they were always available. Now you're complaining because it's being taken off. I see a lot of, that's not how I feel, but I've seen a lot of people think like that. But it's more along the lines of like, um, you know, uh, like I said, I don't lose a lot of sleep about not being able to replay old games, but it sucks in terms of preservation. It's, you know, not a good thing to think about. Like, you know, Super Mario Brothers, in my opinion, is like video game 101 in terms of video game theory, in terms of video game design. You know, when I think of Super Mario Brothers level 1-1, it's one of, if not the most perfect level in video game history because of the way that you break down that level design in terms of learning, in terms of getting into the game, it's in terms of a tutorial without actually being a tutorial. It's one of the greatest levels of all time, right? Imagine a moment in time where that game just disappeared, where there was no way to access it, Right? And I think that's sort of the way that this has to be looked upon is this th these are decisions that won't affect us. If you're listening to this podcast right now, it's not going to affect you or me. We won't be around 
to see how this will impact the future, which is why preservation has to be handled now. The other thing I want to bring up before uh, I wrap this up, because we're about to hit one hour, is that Nintendo, the way that Nintendo has tackled piracy has obviously blown up in their faces. Like there's no really no other way to put it. You have these moments where you have companies like Nintendo and, and Take-Two where breaking the rules, actually, no, we'll just stick with Nintendo, but obviously Take-Two and GTA uh, mods are one thing. But I'll stick to Nintendo. Nintendo is one of many companies where fans are allowed to break the rules as long as it's convenient to them. Once it's no longer convenient for us as a company, we will no longer allow you to break the rules. It's really the way the Nintendo and many other companies continue to operate. Right? When you think about you know, look look at the look at the way that uh, Super Smash Brothers has been treated by Nintendo, right? The fact that we're only talking about melee because of a bunch of fans. Like, that's literally why we're talking about melee at this point, right? But when it comes to the way that they tackle piracy and emulation, you know, it's impossible to not consider the fact that piracy and emulation have not led to increased engagement with future Nintendo products. It's just, it's just impossible. It's impossible to not put those two together. It's just, it's just, come on, like, let's be honest about this, right? So when you look at piracy, Nintendo has just been tackling it the wrong way. They, it's, it's, they're creating this dry sand effect where they're like, don't look here, don't emulate, don't pirate. And they almost want to guilt you. And you see the people that defend Nintendo. Or the, they'll be like, oh, you know, this is bad. This is wrong. Nintendo's losing so much money. It's like, bruv, they're just really not. Like, it's <laughs> it's not... Uh, how, can, how can emulating old consoles that they no longer generate revenue on possibly negatively affect their balance sheet? It just... One plus one equals two. It just doesn't add up, right? But... The issue is that we've all, we've seen piracy in, um, throughout history, and there's one thing that we've been able to take away from it is that companies will always take the best things out of emulation and piracy, right? They'll take the best ideas. Once the market catches up, they'll implement it themselves, and then they'll do everything that they can to shut down the community that actually created it, right? So when you think about the NES Mini, the SNES Mini, even and at the Nintendo Switch Online, you look at things like even like save states, for example, the ability to forward and rewind, that, those are emulation creations. Those are community-created ideas, right? So the same thing goes with the music industry, right? Netflix was like, no, don't use Netflix. Don't use these services. They're stealing music. They're stealing out of, uh, you know, company, you know, the, your artist pockets. Don't do it. And then eventually the market caught up and these record labels and these companies were formed that said, holy shit, this is what people want. They want to be able 
to pay a ticket to be able to listen as much music as they want and to watch as many films as they want, to watch as many TV shows as they want. And they understood that the the ideal way to tackle piracy is not to continue fighting it, but to take the best pieces out of it and create a better service. That's how Spotify, Apple Music uh, were created. It's very simple. You take the piracy model and you charge people for it, but the people that are paying for it are saying, well, this is worth it. You know, I don't have to worry about viruses and anything getting caught on my computer. I don't have to worry about downloading a shitty version of the uh, or an unofficial version or downloading something that's supposed to be this, but it's actually this other song, for example, right? Solves a lot of the issues of piracy. And this is where Nintendo has put themselves at as a company is instead of offering a solution that makes sense and that works for everybody that, that they can also make money out of, they've chosen to take the other route, which is to limit it and to convince you that, you know, finding someone 14 0.5 million dollars and putting them in jail for three years um, is a punishment that fit the crime. You know, um, it, 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 it just doesn't, man. Let's be honest. And, um, you know, all I can say to wrap this up is you should never, ever feel guilty about using non-legal ways to access entertainment that is no longer readily made accessible to you. It's just that simple. And I, I look at the same thing as with films and TV shows. If someone tells me about a film or TV show and there's no easy way for me to access it and it's readily available, someone put it up on YouTube, yes, it's a non-legal way to access that piece of entertainment but fuck you i'm gonna do it because it's the only way that i can access it i sort of feel the same way about uh emulation a lot of these older um consoles and it's just you gotta admit it's pretty ironic that the company that has the strongest retro legacy that has the strongest amount of nostalgia is kind of almost like dead last when it comes to emulation and preservation of their old games. And somehow Xbox is at the top, which is just super weird. They just, they shouldn't be. It should, it should be the PlayStation Nintendo, even though apparently PlayStation is now, uh, like, like imagine if, if those rumors are true and Project Spartacus includes PS1, 2, 3, 4 content. It's... It's going to look even worse for uh, for Nintendo. So this is just one of those moments where it's like, look, this is how they run their business. You can simultaneously respect those business decisions, but at the same time, judge them and say, yeah, this sucks. This is not um, the way it should be. It could be better. This week's hot releases tomorrow, February 22nd, Destiny 2, The Witch Queen, PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One. Actually, I just noticed all these releases this week... 
That I'm about to announce are PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X. So I'm not going to keep repeating that. That's a To the Witch Queen. February 24th, Martha is Dead. That was the game that we talked about not too long ago, being censored on the physical PlayStation version. And then finally, February 25th, we have Grid Legends and the long-awaited Elden Ring. Time to wrap it up. Sorry, we didn't have time to get to. No Man's Sky is receiving another free beefy update called the Sentinels Update, which adds drones and buildable mechs alongside other combat updates in general. Featured. Feature, excuse me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how else to sort of put this. I mean, hello games, Jesus Christ. How many of these are you going to continue to make free? I wonder if people that play this game feel kind of guilty. Like I, I would feel guilty at this point, only paying for that game once. And then knowing that they're not charging me for any of this stuff and they're continuing to put it on other systems about to come to switch. It's pretty insane. Uh, to see, but I've brought this up in the past. It will definitely pay off for whatever the next game is. In a recent VGC interview, Platinum Game CEO Atsushi Inaba and game designer Hideki Kamiya expressed opinions for NFTs, acknowledging their one-sided financial benefit. Kamiya said, quote, I have zero interest in this subject. It doesn't have any benefit for users at the moment. Truth. In the future, if it's expanded in a way that has a positive side for users, then maybe start to be interested in what they do with it. But I'm not seeing that at the moment. Also adding, he wasn't surprised that Konami embraced it saying, quote, if it smells like money, Konami is going to be there in a heartbeat. Just nothing but truth on uh, on this. And this is just really the way they got to see NFTs in gaming right now. Uh, not a single company, developer, team has been able to successfully make people understand why this is a good idea uh, at all. So uh, there's no reason why anyone who actually works on the games uh, should see any benefit in it. And finally, Horizon Forbidden West director, oof, I'm going to butcher this, Mathis, I hope it's pronounced Mathis, Zhejiang, revealed that avoiding crunch was one of the reasons behind the game's delay. Um, this should always be celebrated any and every time we hear it. I think we're, we've been hearing it more and more within PlayStation's studios, which is pretty great um, to see. Um, but yeah, I think Horizon Forbidden West had one of those like really good delays where it was only just a few months uh, and they delivered on the first date that they put out there. It just goes to show that the game was already in a pretty good state, but that they could have used a few more months and definitely not requiring your employees to work overtime in order to maintain that work-life balance is always an amazing reason for a game's delay. Before we leave, shout out to Valve. Last week, they released the CAD files for the external shell of the Steam Deck making them freely available for tinkerers, modders, accessory manufacturers, or folks who just want to 3D print a Steam Deck to see how it feels. The license for the Steam Deck shells specifies that it is for non-commercial use only, but still just a pretty awesome thing for them to do. Really rare to see that from a hardware manufacturer. Uh, and also they announced that they have partnered with iFixit to offer replacement parts for the Steam Deck. Just everything that Valve have done with this piece of hardware just how open it is. It's so amazing. So definitely big shout outs to them. Thank you so much for joining me. Please follow us on Twitter and YouTube 
at Camp Koji for future updates. Once again, I'm Joel, and I will see you all next time.